So if you open up your Bibles this morning, as you remember, we are working through the book of Mark and we're studying it verse by verse. And the reason why we want to do that is to know Jesus better, to know more about Jesus. And there's two things, two questions that Mark answers. Who is Jesus and why did he come? You remember when we worked through it? We're in week 12 now of the book of Mark. And that is what it's all about. Who is Jesus and why did he come? And we've learned that Jesus is the Son of God. That is what he, he came from heaven. Son of God means somebody who was with God, who is God. And that is what the Bible says. And he came and he lived amongst the people. And then he's also the Son of Man. The one from the earth reaching out to heaven. When Job says, who? Who will intercede for me into heaven? Who was it? The only one who could do that was Jesus Christ himself. So the Son of God and the Son of Man. Through the Bible you find so many different names for these Jesus. And in the Old Testament as well, so different names for God. You find Jehovah Jireh, the one who is our provider. Jehovah Rohi, the one who heals. Jehovah Mkadesh, our banner. So many names in the Hebrew tongue. But also then in Greek, you find so many names for Jesus. Amen? So, as we continue on, I want you to open up in Mark chapter 3. I'm going to talk to you today about the man with the withered hand. And last time when we were studying through this uh, gospel, we saw that Jesus was taking on the Sabbath. You remember when his disciples were walking through a field and they plucked the, the heads of the, of the, um, of the um, wheat, thank you, just checking if you were checking my brother, good, they were taking the wheat and they were cleaning it and they were putting it into their mouth and they started eating it, oh, says the disciples, oh, no, no, you can't do that, why, because it's the Sabbath, you can't work on a Sabbath, and then Jesus turned to them and said to them, Sabbath was made for man and not man for Sabbath. And even Jesus Christ is Lord of Sabbath. And this is why, if you really want to do the Sabbath, you're going to do it on a Saturday. And you go on a Saturday, because that's the real Sabbath. But we have Jesus Christ as the Lord of Sabbath. And what does that mean? He gives us rest. Now this... He did that out in the field, which was evident when they walked through the field. And now we continue the narrative in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. If you've got your Bible, please follow. He said, and he entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. You can just imagine as he walked in. And he spoke, and there's this man with the withered hand. Everybody glazed at Jesus. What's he going to do? Remember, this is in, in, in the synagogue. This is not out in the field. The last time there, they took him on, and he, he actually went back into the field, into Galilee. So they watched him closely, whether he could heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. So they had an agenda. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around them with anger, being grieved 
by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out, and immediately, you see what we always find with Mark? He loves to use this word immediately. He's a young man of action. He says immediately they started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. What a sad story. What a good story, but also a sad story. We find the same account, and I want to read to you there as well, in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew writes about the same account as well. See what he writes down. He says in Matthew 12, 11, Then they said to them, He said to them, What is there among you who has one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay of it and lift it out? Oh, how much more value then is a man than sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and he was restored as whole as the other. Let's thank the Lord for His Word. Father, I thank You for the public reading of Your Word. And even if I say nothing now, Lord, get in my car and go home. I am satisfied that Your Word was heard this morning. And Father, the Bible gives me the confidence that Your Word will not go out and return back void, but it will accomplish every single thing that it's purposed for. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus walks into the Sabbath, into the synagogue. On the back of the Sabbath conversation that he had with field. And they now want to see what can they do, because the Pharisees wanted to destroy Jesus. That was their modus operandi. That was their goal. If they can just nail him with one thing, to show that he was impure, he was breaking the law, they can have an excuse to do what they want to do. And here he walks in, and we saw what happened. Now there's three groups of people that I can identify in the synagogue. The first one is the patient. There is this man who had the withered hand. And if you read on the account in Luke chapter 6, it says that it was his right hand that was withered. His right hand. Now I don't know about you, but if you lose your hands, it's difficult to operate, isn't it? And especially if you're a right-handed person, which this is your dominant hand, if you lose this hand or the functionality of this hand, it becomes difficult for you to operate in life. And if you are a left-handed person and this is your dominant hand, and if you lose your left hand, it becomes difficult to do the daily tasks. And you have to rely on other people. Think for a minute about this man. His whole life he was there. It reduced his capacity to work. Not only to brush his teeth or to comb his hair or to, not even to think about playing something. You know, throw a ball to his, his son. He had to catch it with the other hand. This is just something that, that, you know, it was not good for this man. And it had, it reduced that capacity for him to work. But not only is that reducing your capacity to work, but if you think about your hand, it is also a symbol of fellowship, isn't it? If you walk up to somebody and you stretch out your hand to shake their hand, what does it mean? And normally if you do it like this, you've got an open palm, what does it show? It shows I've got nothing to hide. I come to you with an open hand. 
it's a hand of fellowship. And if it's your dominant hand, normally if you come to me and you stretch out, what am I going to do? I stretch out my right hand and you stretch out your right hand. Just do me a favor this week when somebody wants to shake your hand. And if they go with the right hand, you put out your left hand and you see how awkward that feels. Go and try it. I've tried it a few times. I've done it once when I was eating something. I've, I think I've done it here at church sometimes. And you put your hand and you just touch that little bit of tomato sauce in your hand and it feels dirty and somebody comes over to you and they want to shake your hand. They expect you to come with your right hand, isn't it? And you go over there and you go, oh, I can't do this. And then what do you do? You put out your left hand and they go, what do I do now? And then they take your left hand and it becomes awkward. So a hand is also a symbol of fellowship. So not only was this man, his capacity to work broken down, but also the fellowship hand was not there. And, and if he can't work, he becomes one of the poor in society. And what happens these days? People are looking down on the poor of society. They're looking down upon these people. But there's another one. It's also a sign of generosity, the, the hand. It's a sign of generosity. Have you ever heard this thing about somebody who's easy to help other people? You say he's got an open hand. What does it mean? He's got a hand to give. He's got an open hand. He's not clutching on to these things and holding on to stuff. So if somebody gives freely to other people, we generally say he's got an open hand. So this man was incapacitated. You know, he, he couldn't operate like any normal person operate. And he entered into the synagogue. This was the patient. Then we had the second group there, the spectators. The spectators, the onlookers. So they watched him closely. So that they might accuse him. You see, they had an agenda. They came to find fault. And you find those people in society. I mean, you work with some of them, don't you? They look upon you every day to just see if they can find fault with you. There were these people. Selfish in their hearts. Only thinking about themselves. Only about me, what I can get, myself and I. The three's company. The ruling company in their lives. So in this group, there's a lot of people standing around. In comes He's got a withered hand, and I don't know, you know, maybe walking, trying to hide it from people, and there's the spectacular selfies, and they were hardened in their hearts. You know, they were thinking about themselves. And then you find in the crowd also the silent ones, the ones who's always afraid to say something. Have you noticed those in the crowds? They just hang in the crowd. They just stand there, see what the people say, and then if, if the crowd goes with one people, then they will go with that people as well. They are the followers. This is the second group. Oh, but then we have the physician, don't we? We have Jesus Christ himself. It says, and he entered the synagogue again. Now, why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did he come? To save the lost to heal the sick at heart. That's why he came. This is the man who walked in that, uh, that uh, morning on the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 he says, And she will bring forth a son. This appeared to the virgin, to Mary. He says, You will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. This was why Jesus came to the earth. He came to save people. 
So on this Sabbath, in walks Jesus. There's the withered man, there's the spectators. And they are just looking upon him to see what he's going to do. And then he says the following words. As they look upon this man, he says in Mark chapter 3 verse 4, he says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Very good question, isn't it? You see, because he's very clever. He's very clever. He knew the hearts of the people. And he knew they tried to catch him. He says that to them. He says, or to save a life or to kill it. But they kept silent. You see, there's a double edge in this question. I don't know if you've noticed it. There's a double edge here. He says to them, if it's lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil. And what he was asking these people is to have mercy upon a man who needed mercy. My question to you this morning is, do you have mercy for other people? Do you know what mercy means? It's not giving them what they deserve. Not giving them what they deserve. And here is this man, and they give him a hardened heart. He did not deserve that. And he's asking them for mercy. He says there, what man is there among you as a sheep? You remember when he says that? And it falls into the pit on the Sabbath. And he will not lay a hand and lift it out. He says you will do it for an animal on the Sabbath. Because if you leave it there for a day, what's going to happen? It's going to die. And these people were so hypocritical that on a Sabbath they will go and they will rescue the animal. But here is this man and he's standing there in the midst of them. He's got a withered hand. He, he's most probably poor because he couldn't work. He's not having a lot of friends. He couldn't send out his hand of fellowship. And he's no use to them because he can't give anything away. He hasn't got an open hand. Here is this man, maybe an outcast, but they has got more for an animal than for this man. And let me just say, we are living in a world right now where there is people within our society who wants to bring man down to the likeness of an animal. It's been taught in schools. It says that we evolved from an ape. That is bringing man down to the likeness of an animal. That's not true. We serve a creator God who created everything amongst us and around us. We have it in the psalm which I read to you last week. Psalm 139. He says that God knows us when we were skillfully formed in the womb of your mother. He knew you before you were born. And here he, see, he holds it out to them. And I think it's really brilliant of Jesus when he says to them. He says how much more value is a man than a sheep. You see the law, the man-made law can kill. But we are not lawless. That's what I'm saying. It's not saying we're going to break the law. The law is there for a reason. I mean, if you look in Australia and we've got a law down here, if it says you drive 80 kilometers on that road, why do they put it 80 kilometers? Because there's a lot of movement around this road. There's little children coming close to the road. There's, there's two or three old age homes here with all the people walking close to this busy road. Then you bring the speed limit down and you say you can't go faster than 80. I think with the population that's going around here, they should bring it down a little bit more. Because you should see the cars racing down here. Now, if you go and you say, wait a minute, you know, I'm, not, I'm above the law, and you jump in your car and you race down your 100 kilometers an hour, what do we want? We want you. Because you're breaking the law. We're not lawless. But what they're talking about is a different law. 
These men and they said, poor man. That is a spiritual law. That's a ritual law they brought in. And let me say there's so many, so many religions out today who's got so many strict laws. You have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do this. And I said it last week. The Bible is also full of laws. It, did, it just didn't disappear. If you take the Ten Commandments, one of those commandments says, Thou shalt not steal. Shall we abide by that? Of course we have to. If you start stealing, what's going to happen to you? You can land in jail. Thou shalt not murder. Now, I'm a Christian. And I say, wait a minute. I'm not, you know, I'm above the law. And you start killing people, what's going to happen? They're going to jail you. Is that right? So it's not above the law. But Jesus Christ said, and he said, I fulfilled the law. What law was he talking about? The law, brother and sister, the law which was given to Moses, the Mosaic law. He fulfilled that law, which is all in the Bible in Deuteronomy. He fulfilled it, not for us to break it, but we fulfill it in Christ. And the Sabbath is one of those laws. So he come to them and he says, he asked this question back to them. He says, do you want me to be evil on the Sabbath? And I tell you one thing, if he did an evil act on the Sabbath, they will all talk about it. It will be in the front page of the Jerusalem uh, newspaper the next day. Jesus did this wrong thing. So the second one, out of this question that he asked, and I like this one, he asked first, he says, is it lawful to do good or evil? And then he says, is it lawful to save a life or to kill? And there he had them. Think about this. Think about this. If the Pharisees have no mercy for saving life, they indict themselves as killers on the Sabbath. Think about that. He's very clever, is Jesus, isn't he? He says, do you want to save somebody if it's a Sabbath? Or do you want to kill somebody? Because what if somebody is so sick on a Sabbath and you have to give him attention and you don't? Like that animal. You run quickly to the animal to get him out. But if it's a human being, you say, oh no, it's a Sabbath, you can't do that. So it becomes very technical. Very technical. Now I want to go on and I want to show you what these people are. Now, before I go there, let me just go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Because we easily can look upon other people and say, ah, they are wrong. They are wrong. And I want to just tell you, the reason why I came to this thinking is, I sometimes when I read the scriptures wonder what I would have done when I was there then. Have you ever thought about that? Let's say you were standing in the synagogue amongst the crowd and there you see Jesus coming in and there you see the man with the withered hand and you see the Pharisees. How would you have operated? And I know what most of the people in this church would say. Oh no, we would have standed behind Jesus. We would have said, heal him Jesus. Isn't that what you would have said? But I want to test that. I want to challenge that. You know, sometimes I think about the cross when they hang him on the cross. And I think by myself, if I would have lived then and I was standing next to that cross, what would I have done when I was standing there? And I know what most of this church would have said. We would have said, no, don't crucify him. No, we would have fought for him like Peter tried to do. But I want to challenge you on that. I definitely want to challenge you on that. Because sometimes... I think I might have been one of those people standing in the crowd shouting, crucify him. Is that shocking you if I say that? 
Let me qualify it why I say that. I might have been one of the I might have been one of the guys in the front stirring up people. I might have been one of those. You can't sit here today and say, no, 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 back in the day, I would have been that person. Let me qualify that, brother and sister. The reason why I say that is because each one of us were born in sin. We were naturally born rebels. The Bible says when we were born, we were turning aside, speaking lies. The Bible says when we were born, we didn't come out of the womb and say, we're going to serve Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. We came out and we started rebelling. We started throwing tantrums. I've got an 11-year-old grandson. And I use this with the liberty of his mom and dad. The other day we were sitting and having dinner and he, he wanted something and he says, mm! and I turned to his mom and dad and says, who taught him that? Was it mom or was it dad? <laughs> what am I getting to? We all were burned sinners who needs a savior. And here is the thing, brother and sister, I'm standing here by the mercy of God who was saved in my teens. I, was, I wasn't saved when I was a boy. I, I wasn't privileged to be saved when I was 10 years old or 15 years old. It came late in my life. So let's say, let's say I was 19 years old and this crucifixion happened and I was there. Do you want to think I was going to stand in the crowd and go against the crowd and say, take him off the cross and started fighting with the crowds? Do you think that is what I would have done? No, I was caught up in the crowd. I was doing what the crowd did when I was 19 years old. Do you get what I'm saying? What if I was 19 years old and I stood in that synagogue, a Jewish boy, and I had my favorite Pharisees that I followed, Gamaliel and all of them. What if I was 19 years old and I stood in that synagogue and there I see Jesus coming in, the healer, and there I see the withered man. And you know what my whole upbringing taught me? My whole upbringing taught me, he's guilty. He had sinned or his parents had sinned. That's why he's got the withered hand. I might have been one of the accusers. I might have been one pointing fingers at him and says, yes, don't do that. And then who's this man coming in here trying to throw away our whole religion that we've been brought up in? But here is the challenge. It's not how you've been brought up. It's who you meet that matters. And you need to meet the Son of God. You need to meet Jesus Christ who can save your soul. Your soul. Are you with me this morning? So when I look at these Pharisees and I was meditating and contemplating this passage, this scripture burning my heart, I want to read it to you. Matthew 7 verse 1, it says, Judge not that you not judged. It's so easy for us to judge others, isn't it? For with what judge you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? That's a good question. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. You see what the Bible called that person? He calls him a hypocrite. You know, want to know what a hypocrite is? It's an actor. That's what the word means. It's not who you really are. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now I've laid a foundation there for a purpose. Because I'm going to 
unpack something for you now which might touch each and every one in this place. First of all, we see that he looked around at these people. This is Jesus. He looked around with anger. Now that is not a a hatred anger. That's not a, I'm going to crush you anger. It is with an upset anger there. He looked around and being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of their hearts. How can you see this man and not want to help him? You who received mercy can't give mercy. You who received grace can't give grace. That really stuck him. And let me say this now. There's some signs that we can see of hardened hearts. And measure yourself up against this. Because this is what we do, isn't it? We come every Sunday, we open up the Bible, and what do we find? We find the Bible is a mirror. Have you, have you know that scripture verse? It's in, in James, yeah? He says, the Bible is a mirror. And what happens when you look in the mirror? You see a reflection. When you woke up this morning and you look in your mirror, were you sure a reflection of whom? Was it your, your mom? Your dad? Or was it, uh, hopefully not me. <laughs> you walk up to the mirror and you take the sleep out of your eyes and you go, what are you, what are you expecting to see? Your own face. You're going out there and say, oh, this Pastor John's face, what is he doing in my mirror? No, no, you see a reflection of yourself, isn't it? But when we come to the Word of God, whose reflection do we see? When we open up, we look into the mirror and we see our shortcomings and we change into the image of His Son. What we want to apply now. Look at this now. There's a few signs of a hardened heart. The first sign that you find is no conviction. Look around you. Look at people. Look at Christians who call themselves Christians. Look at people who used to come to church and not come to church anymore. There is no conviction. That's a sign of a hardened heart. They do something wrong, but they don't feel convicted by it. Let me just ask the question, is this our world today? Is the world feeling convicted with all of the wrongdoings they're doing? No. So the world is living with hardened hearts. 2 Peter chapter 2.20 For if, after they've escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, I love it when he says his Lord. That's his title and Savior Jesus Christ. He's not only a prophet. No, no. He was a prophet, but he's the Son of God, the Lord and Savior. He says the Bible calls him Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them. In what? In the world and overcome. The latter end is worse than the beginning. For if they would have been better for them to have known the way of righteousness, not, not known the way, than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What is these people? They've got no conviction anymore. A sign of an hardened heart if somebody do something wrong and they can't say sorry. And this applies in your relationship with your husband and a wife, your children and your parents. If a husband does something wrong, you know the easiest words to do is to go up to your wife and say, you know what, I'm sorry, please, to forg please forgive me. But if you've got no conviction, then you can't go up to anybody and say, I'm sorry. So that's a sign. It's a sign of an hard and white. It's a no conviction. Secondly, no contentment. Listen very carefully. 
If, if you think about no conviction, and you put it onto the spectators standing in the synagogue, are they guilty? Absolutely. There's no conviction in their hearts. But also, no contentment. What does that mean? People complain about everything in life. No contentment. Oh, I, I know so many moaners. I called it earlier on the monas. You know, contentment. Not happy with anything in life. And you, and, and you know this one thing. There's this area where they're not content with anything. Then you change to make that so, th so that they're just happy. But then there's always the next thing that they're not going to be happy with, not content with. Then you fix this thing for them to be happy with. And then there's the third thing that they're not happy with. They're not content with that. And by the time you fix the third thing, the first thing fell out again. Am I right or wrong? How many times have you tried to keep people happy? You can't keep people happy. I'm talking about people who's never content in their lives. There's always going to be something, some small thing that's going to make them unhappy. And, and I'll tell you what, they will amplify that small thing and that becomes the discussion in this small little group. You, you go in there and you say, you, you, you sit there and you want to hear what they're talking about and it is a boom, moan and groan and moan and groan about something. And then, and then you see this for quite some time and four or five weeks later you come in and that thing is finished now. They, ooh, three or four, five, and you walk in there and it's something else, a new topic, and oh no, it's not right. Brr. Never content is a sign of an hardened heart. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 talks about this. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you care for me as florist again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity to come to me. There was Paul saying to them, He says in verse 11, Now, that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. You know what happens with discontentment? It changes into anger. That's what discontentment go to. Paul says, doesn't matter what state I am in, I'm content. Now, if you want to pray that prayer, be careful, because you will be tested. Whatever state I am in, I'm content. I have no money, I'm content. I have no friends, I'm content. I have the thing that I worked on so long didn't work out the way it worked out, I'm content. And I thank God. So there's two. No conviction, no contentment. I'm not going to go through a long list. No affliction. No affliction is a sign of an hardened heart. That's when the world becomes your friend. You see, the thing is about the church in the old, the, the old church, the, the world hated the church. The world afflicted the church. It costed people a price to come to church. We are getting back to those days again. Mark my words. We are getting back to those days again. We're putting banners up here, church. People driving past you will hate us for a church. That's coming back quickly. But we had it easy for a long time in the West. You go and talk to Christians who's not living in the West. How afflicted they are. In some countries they are caught to being a Christian. They are killed for that. They are afflicted for that. But you see, the church has grown soft. We want the world to love us. And we do things and we change things for the world to love us. And this is the problem in Psalm 119. Listen to what the psalmist says, verse 71. He said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Well, how could he say that? That I've been afflicted. It's good. 
Why? That I may learn of your statues. Let me say it this morning. In your darkest hours when you see Christ the best. Because you seek for him every minute, every second. So, there's three there. There's no conviction, no contentment, no affliction, no affection. No affection is a sign of a hardened heart. You're living in a world which loves each other. Can you see affection in the world today? No, people just want to go at each other, go at each other, go at each other. See somebody cut you off, what happens? You show him affection? Oh, look, he's driving a beautiful car. I love that car. <laughs> no, we're going at each other. Second Timothy 3 verse 1, he says, But know this, that in the last days, and I want you to listen to this verse, because this is what we're living in. Are we living in the last days? Yes, we are. He says, In the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Amen? Men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Yes? This is what the world is all about. Boasters. Oh, you find a lot of those. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Can I hear all the parents say amen? That's what's happening in the world now today. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Oh, unforgiving. Slanderous. Without self. Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. Lovers of pleasure than lovers of God. You see, that's what it is. There's no affection for the people. Having a form of godliness but denying its power from such, people turn away. So there you have it. If you think about these people, there is this crowd. Looking upon this poor man, they had none of those. It shows a heart and heart. And this is why Jesus said that. When he looked at them, he saw their hardened heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as the whole other. Then the Pharisees went out immediately to plot against him, so that they might destroy him. You see, Jesus is very clever here again. He didn't touch the man, so that they could say he did a work. He just said to the man, stand forward. Stand out of the crowd. Come out of the crowd. The man stepped forward with his withered hand. And all he said is, stretch out your hand, and the hand was healed. He didn't do anything. They can't go away and say he worked on the Sabbath. No. But that didn't help. They just ran away and they start this. Let's finish off this morning with the narrative. In verse 7 he says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So he was in the synagogue. He went away. He came back to the synagogue. Now he goes back to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, Udemia, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things He was doing. That is what a lot of people is looking for Jesus, the things He can do for me. And you know how I hear this when people pray this prayer? Oh Lord Jesus, if only You can give me this one thing, I will serve You for the rest of my life. You know what it is? It's what He can do for you. He wants a relationship with you. Who knows what's a relationship? A relationship is giving. Is giving. If you have two people who's in a relationship, and the one gives, the other one gives, the one gives, and the other one gives, there's never a, a, a way of asking to receive. Is there? 
And this is what Jesus did when He came. He never, never asked of people. He always gave. He always gave. Look at this man. He came up. The man was there. What did he do? He healed the man. Did he went around and say, hey, put a hundred dollars here in my pocket? Or did he try to stand up and say, oh, see what I've done, see what I've done? No. He always gave. That's the relationship. So we need to go into that relationship. So when we come into a relationship with Christ, what do we do? We give Him our lives. Yes? Romans chapter 12. John, uh, Paul writes this. He says, I urge you, brothers, to give your lives as a living sacrifice to God. How do we give our lives to Him? We surrender to Him. No work's done. No work's done. No, you've got to be a really good boy and a really good girl. You've got to do all these things more. No, no, no. no. We come to Him. And what do we do? We confess to Him. We submit to Him. He saves our souls and we, we find eternal life. Forever. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to change us gradually from the inside out. No laws that you've got to go tick every morning every single law. Or you have to do this. No, there's no have to's. All you need to do is stay in relationship with him. Let me finish on and then we'll finish. He says, they came for the things he was doing. And they came to him. I love those words. They came to him. If there's one phrase that can stick in your mind this morning, come to Jesus. They came to him. Why? Because they knew that he could heal them. And then, in verse 9, he says, So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him, because the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many who had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. Imagine this. There's thousands, and everybody just want to touch Jesus. They just want to fall on him. Because at one stage, you know, if they touch him, power goes out of his body into them and heals them. Jesus always heals. And what did he say? Just get a small boat so that I can go on a small boat, draw away from the crowd. Because let me just quickly test us. Why did Jesus come to the earth? To be a miracle healer? No. He came to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? You have to submit to Jesus Christ to be saved. The gospel was him going to the cross. Now when the crowds came, the miracles was only to draw the crowds. Now he didn't do a miracle to draw. The, that was his, the miracles happened, the news spread, and when the crowds came, what did he do? On a boat, push away, start preaching the gospel for the soul. And even unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out. You see unclean spirits, demon spirits? occupying people, when they saw him, they fell down before him. And they would cry out in the, You are the Son of God! How did they know? You see, there's a lot of people today who question Mark, who Jesus is. Some say he's only a prophet. But the Bible says he's the Son of God. And here is actual people who's, who's got demon spirits in them. And they come out and they see something else that normal people see and all fall down and they shout, you are the Son of God! Because He is the Son of God. But He's also God. Remember what John 1, 1 says? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, He was God. And in verse 14 He says, He come and He lived amongst us, to be with us, and in Him was light. And that light was life, the eternal life that all of us needs to carry around in us. In us. 
That's the gospel. And here these, these demon spirits come and they confirm that. Now the question is, was that a good thing or not? And the answer is, no, it was not. Because they did not come to, to show His goodness and that He's Christ. They came to try to rule over Him. That's why they came to do that. And what did He do? Did He walk around as they were shouting out, You are the Son of God! And He goes, Oh, I am the Son of God. Oh, I am the Son of God. And go, come on, come on crowd. Did He do that? No, no, what did He do? He quieted them. He says, but He sternly warned them that they should not make Him known. Why? He, wasn't, he didn't need demon spirits to come and, and make him. No. But also, his time has yet not come to die on the cross. Amen? So what have we learned this morning? That Jesus Christ is the healer as well. He, this man stretched out his hands. But we also learned this morning to taste our own hearts. To see that we don't have an heart and heart. We need to test ourselves every day. In every relationship we need to test it. With our, with our husbands and wives and our children. Don't become hardened in that. But the most important of all, please do not have a hardened heart against God. Because let me tell you something. It's not a secret. You will come second. Don't take God on. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good morning for your word. Your word is powerful, it's, it's living, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, which cuts between bone and marrow, Lord, spirit and soul. And Father, it is the discerner of the heart. And I thank you, Lord, that we've heard this morning.